0: No, but it just hasn't happened, um, but it will. I believe it will. And when I said I feel like he needs me, is because uh, the other fight fell through and there's probably a demand for who's next, like people saying who's next, and I think, I think I'm a good candidate, you know what I mean? So I think this is a good time to kind of put that pressure on. But that's where my mind is like, people I'm sure, Franklin's thinking about, I want to become every champion of in the world if I don't him, this is where I'm going. So I'm thinking, like, if I get through this guy, he's dangled a carrot in front of me. I'm chasing him. When AJ boxed Alexander Usyk, the split was already determined by the
1: order of the mandatory. It was 25%. He didn't have a belt. It was just a challenger in the heavyweight division. AJ took it on the chin because he wanted to be undisputed. He said, OK, fine, 75-25. Beat AJ twice to unify the division. And Fury just offered him an extra 5%. The biggest payday of Alexander Usyk's career so far is bigger than the biggest payday of Tyson Fury's career. And on that, I bid you farewell.
0: Hey, and welcome back to the number one podcast in the sport where... We're going to have eight big men going at it in the next six to eight weeks. And we really don't care about any of those fights. And that's a really dark time for boxing. When we get that many big men and there's like virtually zero interest, it's a problem. The public don't care anymore. And that's the sport that we've kind of allowed to happen on our watch. Those that come before or those that came before, those that come after will look at us and go, how did you let this happen? And this, this has to be a crisis, all of the creation of social media and, you know, media manipulation and some of these camera jockey outlets have to take accountability for, for the nonsense that they've created. Because, let me try and do this, I can't even remember how it goes in what sequence. So we, we will have Anthony Joshua versus Dillian White, August 12th. We will then have Alexander Usyk versus Daniel Dubois, August 26th. Two days later, we've got Tyson Fury versus Francis Ngannou. And then I think it's... Is it September 2nd? I can't remember. September 30th. Whenever it is, we've got Joe Joyce versus Jile Zhang. That's just in the heavyweights. And then we've still got to find out when Wilder fights. And you probably fight Andy Ruiz maybe mid-September, mid-October. Somewhere around there. And now... And by the way, someone's going to correct me on that, on that Joe Joyce date because I think I've either hit the Eubank Junior date or and I've hit the Canelo date, but not the Joe Joyce versus Zhang date. But says it all, I guess. And so, in all of this mess, there isn't one fight there that the fans were begging for. Not one fight that the fans were begging for. So let's just give a brief synopsis of each fight: AJ versus Dillian Cash grab, Fury versus Ngannou. Bigger cash grab, huge cash grab. Brings Matt robbery-style cash grab. Um, Dubois versus Usyk feels a bit like lamb to the slaughter. But if Daniel Dubois were to win, that would take the heavyweight division in a completely different direction. That would be absolutely incredible for boxing. That would be that would be a Cinderella tale if ever there was one. If he were to win. and By the way, I do hope he wins for so many reasons, which we'll come on to later. Um, And then Joyce versus Zhang. Uh, I kind of feel the first fight was so decisive that does it need a second one? Especially when Joe said he's not going to change anything. So essentially, that's it, right? So there's not much to get excited about. Apart from can, can Joyce bring the upset? And how insane is the Saudi Arabian event going to be? I don't even think it will be that insane. I genuinely think they've just paid to get Fury there. And we will get Badu Jack fight against a hand-picked opponent. Uh, We may get a couple of Brits there. And there will be a couple of Saudi guys I'll put on that card. Because obviously they need to show some patriotism. But let's just zero in on on AJ White. I'm going to try and do these in sequence as well. So I can get my, my thinking straight. So we get we get Anthony versus Dillian again. So this is the third instalment. One amateur two pro. Um I really don't care about this fight, but I do care at the same time because there's interest in this fight. There are questions like Really what we want to know is how far have both men fallen. And I know people complain and they'll say, ah, but look at it, they're old and they're past it. But they're not much older than Ali and Frazier in 1975 for the Thriller in Manila. They're not that much older. I think Ali would have been, I'm guessing, 33. And Frazier would have been about 31, 32. I might be wrong on those numbers, but... It's around the early to mid thirties as well. Joshua's thirty three, Dillian's thirty-five. Factor in, come you know, they take care of each other or take care of themselves better. They have access to better everything. So it's not it's not like, you know, it's not like the seventies. So we can watch this and it will be credible. And this is probably both men's final hurrah, for being honest. I think it'll be that kind of fight where neither man will be the same. If it ends early, it ends early. But in ending early, it's going to take that much out of both men that you won't want to see them against young, hungry killers anymore. And I found the build-up's been interesting. It's been strange. We were expecting the tension, but you almost feel like they got all of that out in the first first instance, right? When When they first fought for matchroom, you feel like they got all of that stuff out. You're the fake this, you're the fake that. And their lives have moved on considerably. Dillian's a lot wealthier than he was back then. It's very hard to, be, it's hard to be mad at a rich man when you're a rich man yourself. None of these guys have been close enough to the streets to claim anything. So essentially these guys are battling as boxers now. It's not Watford versus Brixton. It's not, um, I came up in the streets, you pretend. None of that matters anymore. It's the fact that both men have lost three times. Um, Joshua beaten into submission the first time and then comprehensively outboxed the next two times. Dillian White um, dropped every time. That's a way to describe it. Dropped every time and showed that uppercuts are something he struggles with because all of his stoppages have been triggered by uppercuts. So you've got two humble men now facing each other. Understanding that They've declined, and it's just about who's declined the most. But I can tell you this now, the gap between mobility-wise has closed significantly because Dillian's done a lot of the right things. Dillian never sacrificed his secret weapon, never sacrificed that left hook. That was always his secret weapon, and what he was able to do was build solid fundamentals around that. So he, he eliminated a lot of areas of weakness of his, so his jab is a lot better. His movement's not amazing, but his positioning's got a lot better. And sometimes it's easier to do that than it is to try and rebuild a fighter. So I think what Dillian's done is he's gone, this left hook is my money punch. I just need to fix everything else up so I can be competitive in the fight until I land it. I feel with Anthony Joshua, we've been through like four or five different versions of him. It's always a comprehensive rebuild. After Klitschko, there was a rebuild needed. After Ruiz, there was a rebuild needed. After Usyk 1, there was a rebuild needed. After Usyk 2, there was a rebuild needed. Franklin, there's another rebuild that's needed. And that's going to be the difference between the two men. The consistency and approach of Dillian, I know he's changed trainers, but if you look at how he's boxed, it's generally been to the same themes and ideas. He hasn't tried to do anything too different. Like He hasn't decided to all of a sudden become an inside boxer because it's not who he is. So I think that's what closes the gap, is that in the years where Joshua should have been refining who and what he is in the ring, he's constantly wrestled with that in-ring identity. So he's gone from 0 to 100, back to 0 every time that it hasn't worked. And that is not how you grow as a fighter. It's You understand what your strengths are, you understand what you enjoy doing in the ring, and then you just shore up your weaknesses while you emphasize those strengths. Boxing 101. I don't know who wins this, because I don't know who's got what in the tank. I can get in-camp reports from people, because both men are in the United States, so you can get reports about who's doing what, when, why and how, but these are two men who know each other, and once they get to that point where they can get stuck into each other, we'll find out a lot more. But just to bring it all the way back, I think Joshua's approach to this has been really interesting, because he's now having to acknowledge the problems he created. The chickens have come home to roost. So if you look at some of the themes of what Joshua's been saying, he doesn't care about um, Fury fighting in Saudi, fighting in Ghana for allegedly $40 million, right? But that's all Joshua and Matchroom. We're, we're going to take the best deal for Anthony. It's a short career. The fighters own this. The fighters own that. They determine who they fight. All stuff that came out of the Joshua camp or the matchum camp at the peak of the Joshua project. This is all the stuff we were being told. They turned boxing into GCSE business studies. We need to build the fight. To take, we'll take these steps to build the fight so we can sell out that arena. And you're like, no, we just want him to fight people we care about. And now Tyson Fury, and and Fury, look, I'm going to uh, probably come on to this in a sec, but. Fury's got every right to fight in Garnu. He's earned the right to do that. When you sit on top of the tree, that's what you do. You do stuff like that. But if we come back to, to AJ didn't so Joshua's been moaning about, I don't care about Deontay, he's messed me around. I think we can all agree as boxing fans, if there's one guy that's shown up for every fight that's been put in front of him with no fear, it's been Deontay Wilder. 100% it's been Deontay Wilder. There's no debate around that. But I don't believe for one second that Deontay Wilder messed anyone around. I think the Joshua Project tried to bully Deontay Wilder before he became the Wilder he is now. And had they had more of a fighter spirit, an old-school mentality, perhaps they would have made that Wilder fight on equitable and reasonable terms, understanding that Joshua had to fight for legacy. Now, look, they're talking about, oh, this fight's going to happen in December. And you're like, (laughs) really? Really? How? You know, as much as Anthony Joshua will talk about he's going to box behind his jab, stick and move, stick and move, his jab won't be better than Dillian's. So he's not going to do that. Eventually the emotion will get in and they'll, they'll have a war for as long as it lasts. and That's okay, but that's going to take a toll. The idea that Joshua's going to slot straight back into a 12-week camp after a week's rest is ridiculous. Even if you call it a 10-week camp, it's absolutely ridiculous because that pushes you right into the tail end of December. When's the, when is this fight supposed to happen? Now they're talking about it may happen in January, but you're looking at the schedule and you're going, okay, um, Wilder's not scheduled to fight. September's looking like a, like a wrap in terms of being able to slot a date in. So Wilder might fight mid-October. Let's say he, he stops Andy Ruiz in three rounds he's still not going to be emotionally or physically in any kind of shape to fight in December or January. None of them are. So this is a problem we have. So we'd be right back to... Who's going to fight Fury? Is it Usa or is it Joshua? We're going to be right back to the same silly dance. Which we're going to have until these guys are out the sport. And that's the frustration with all of this. is that The fans have been taken for a ride all for the benefit of these boxers who are making multi-million pound paydays. Just remember, many of you listening are the reason why Tyson Fury was able to fight Derek Chisore in front of 60,000 fans at White Hart Lane. That should never have been allowed to happen. Can you imagine Manchester United charging Champions League prices to play Chester City? In the in the preseason friendly because i can't i find that absolutely ridiculous but if we just come back to to a j for a sec you know AJ's now talking about um the difference that derek james is making and ah oh, you know he's saying he's six foot six he should be- boxing behind the jab he should be jabbing he should be moving you know what 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 do the fans want him to do just stand and box up mike tyson well when you first started out eddie Hearn was saying This is a new Mike Tyson. Eddie Hearn was saying this is the most exciting heavyweight probably of the last 30 years. These are Eddie Hearn's words. We were being told that this guy will go undefeated. He'll knock everyone out. He'll give you an exciting style. He'll put it all on the line. That's what we were sold and that's what we got behind. We didn't get behind stick and move, Joshua. We got behind brawn over Brains, Joshua. That's what made him a multi-millionaire. That is what got him all those endorsement deals. That's what made AJ a wealthy man. Brains over brawn, Joshua, is a massive disappointment. And then when you layer in Brains over brawn, Joshua, with the dumb stuff that he says, how many times do you see him in an interview and he's trying to count his points, a point one, point two, point three, and he gets to point two and he's got three fingers out? No one notices things like this, where you're like, this guy's dumb. And it's a lack of self-awareness. He doesn't understand that the whole brand that he built, the Joshua Project, was built on destruction. How are you going to talk about I want to stick and move? But the the show's called Maximum Violence. This is what I mean. (laughs) They can't let go of this Joshua Project. It's not going (laughs) to... It's either maximum violence or a and move. Which one is it? And then we will determine whether we go to or whether we pay the pay-per-view. But you can't keep lying to us saying, "Ah, these two don't like each other, it's going to be a war. And then Josh is like, what am I getting into a war for? Is the tail wagging the dog? Is the dog wagging the tail? We have no idea at the moment. It's just, those guys are just trying to get whatever money they can. And then to start making points about Robert Garcia, I think he needs to remember, Robert Garcia has been training world champions for a long, long time now. And he actually delivered Mikey Garcia, who I genuinely believe had Mikey you not know, had the ego to go to 147. We be talking about Mikey Garcia as a pound for pound guy if he had stayed between lightweight and probably junior welter. Robert Garcia knows boxing. Robert Garcia knows how to coach. The idea that Robert Garcia gets a hard time and Angel Fernandez doesn't, Beggar's belief. Every trainer Joshua's had has been criticized somehow, except for Angel Fernandez, who, if I'm being honest, is probably the worst of the lot. And I don't want to say that because at one point, me and Angel were cool, we were friends. But if you rank the guys based on achievements, if you rank them based on the fighters they have produced, you'd sooner trust McCracken. You'd sooner trust Roberto Garcia. You'd sooner trust Derek James. I'd sooner trust Joby Clayton before I trusted Angel Fernandez. Harsh but true. So to take shots at Roberto Garcia is so disrespectful. To say I wasn't learning anything from him, you probably didn't want to. And I think I think we will find that when the pressure comes on in this fight against Dillian, Joshua will go into business for himself. Yeah? This whole sticker move, Joshua. Oh. You know, six foot six guys have always been known to stick and move. No, Riddick Bowe was six five six six. He knew how to have a war. Lennox was six five six six. We saw Lennox drop his hands against Shannon Briggs, and that's a dangerous thing to do. And then put him to sleep. We saw Vitaly go to war. When Vlad had to go to war, he went to war. So this idea that I don't know. I'd just say, he's sounding like a guy that's scared to get hit. And uh, it's a weird thing to say about pro boxing, but that's the energy he's giving off. I'm not saying it's true, but that's the energy he's giving off. You made your name by choosing brawn Over Brains. Just ride it till the wheels fall off. That's, that's how you build your legacy. The same way Wilder made his legacy going for the knockout. And even in his defeats, you look at Wilder going, go, wow, you, you took Fury's head clean off. Credit to Fury for getting up. But we know those three fights took something out of Fury's soul. That's why he's fighting guys like Nganu. You know, don't, don't get it confused. So, come August 12th, when that fight's said and done, neither Joshua nor Dillian White will be any further forward if they win. So, what was all the fuss for? What was all the social media for? That's what I'm asking you. And then we can just pivot to to a fight that does make a bit of sense, right? Veteran, has three belts, fighting a young hungry lion who's already faced tribulations in his life, in his career. And it's giving Daniel Dubois an opportunity to ascend to the top table of the heavyweight division. So Usyk, like Wilder, showing he will fight anyone, anytime, anyhow. They're the two guys you've got to put at the top of the tree right now, in my opinion. Usik and Wilder. Because they seem like the sort of guys, if you give them a date and an opponent, they'll be there. Everyone else will be squabbling over rematch clauses, this, that, and the third. They'll just get it cracking. But this fight, I don't know. There was a moment, and I don't know if anyone's seen the video. Um, uh, I think it was Uma, IFL Uma, who had the video. And Umar stood next to Daniel Dubois, and Usyk walks past, stops, looks at Dubois, and he gives him that look that says, it's you and me. And Daniel kind of looks, and he looks shocked, like, oh, the games have started already? But Usyk's like, I'm not playing games. And Dubois' head drops. Not a millimetre, it just drops, chin-to-chest type drops. And I watched it and went, no, please don't do that. And I think that was the signal Usyk needed to say he can do what he wants. So, in the build up, we've seen Usyk rapping. I don't know if he was rapping or if it was a poem, but he definitely got his freestyle on. His shoulders were swaying. I mean, the peace signs were up, all of that. And Usyk was doing what he could to make it interesting. But this is a fight of two people of very few words, definitely very few English words. So the build-up's been more about Dev Sani. Let's not lie, like Dev's had to do a lot of the talking and a lot of the hyping up because between the two camps, there's not much. Like Don's not a guy to, to talk too much. Don does his talking in the ring. Daniel does his talking in the ring, as do T-Music. So this isn't going to capture the public's imagination. If Dubois wins, then it does, and that uh, catapults him into the sports personality of the year, surely. As, as crazy as that sounds, but it, you have to. Because people are putting Usyk on the pound-for-pound pound list at number one. If Daniel wins, who most impressive win by a Brit. But can he win? That's the question. Watching his head drop, I might be reading too much into it, because Daniel's quite a resilient guy. And maybe come fight night, the switch goes on. But I can remember talking to Don Charles about Usyk. And one of the things we agreed upon was, If you stand in the right places, you don't get the same Usyk. If you know where to put yourself, in in key situations, Usyk will struggle. That's why he struggled with Bredis. Bradus came from a kickboxing background, so his foot placing wasn't where you're used to because Usyk's whole style is predicated on people being pretty easy to read. And therefore, it's a very simple playbook for him. Orthodox guy does this, I do that. Very simple playbook. Daniel has to find a way to upset that, much like Derek did. And Don was in in Derek's corner that time. You have to find a way to just go, the textbook teaches you one thing. Usyk has read that textbook. Give him something he hasn't read. See how long it takes him to adapt. And once he adapts, go back. That's the art of war. Subtly shifting your shape so your opponent sees something different every time. I can see how he could do it. I'm not saying he will do it, by the way, before I get criticised. There are ways you can do it. But you've got to deal with the occasion, the expectation, the enormity of it, the consequences of not doing it. Will you be able to do that? The pressure that, yo, if I don't win one first and Caroline wins one before me, then she'd have been the first Dubois to win a world title. All of these things, the pressure from your dad, all the stuff that can sit in your head. Over the next six weeks or so. Having to travel to Wroclaw said it right. You know, nice part of Poland, by the way. Um, if you're going out there, I thoroughly recommend going out there. If you're a single man, a thousand percent recommend you go out there because you're going to get the finest Prussian blood. I think it's like, there's a border on to Austria? Like, if you, if you love that Aryan look, and you, you know who I'm talking to now, don't you? Yeah, <laughs> if you love that Aryan look, Wroclaw is where you go, because that's like the the mother load. That's the, you know, like when you mine something, you get that pure ore that doesn't need refining. That's what Wroclaw essentially is. It's where the purest of the of the Prussian bloodline will find itself. So if you're out, if you if you're up for that, get yourself out there. Bank holiday weekend. I mean, you know, if you like those sorts of women, you're not going to be a carnival anyway. So. May as well get stuck in. But I can see how Daniel can do it. I think it's advantageous having Don in the corner. I think you know, Don can give you that kind of unconventional lean, which is good. But it's a hard ask. You're hoping that you can hurt Usyk. You're also hoping that Usyk got old against Joshua in those two fights. That's what you're hoping. And the mobility is not what it was. And he's a little bit easier to read. And his punch resistance isn't what it used to be. So a lot of uppercuts just to test, you know, how strong is that head and neck. But if you ever look at Usyk, Usyk's got quite a short neck but really wide shoulders. Which seems to be a good build for a boxer. Generally speaking, that short neck, wide shoulder thing seems to work. So I am wondering, like, you know, how's this all going to end? But I wish him all the best. Because that would be a massive shake-up if Daniel were to win. Because now we're having different conversations around who should fight who. But here's what it would do. I think it would freeze Eddie out for a long, long time in terms of heavyweight contenders. That's what, that's what would make it interesting. Because you could see there being an easier unification fight to make between Dubois and Fury. Once that's done, you can scatter the belts. The winner of Joyce Zhang will get a, a shot. I imagine Wilder would get a shot. Um, I imagine whoever lost would also get a shot. So, you could freeze Eddie out of the heavyweight picture for a while, just with a couple of clever chess moves. So, credit to Frank for for putting himself in this kind of position, you know, got to really look at it and go, Frank has his hands in three of the big fights amongst the heavyweights, right? He's got Dubois Usyk, he's got Fury Nganu, and he's got Joe Joyce versus Zhilei Zhang. That's Frank. Remember, we're, we were talking about Eddie being king of the world if he ever pulled off a stunt like that. But we're not calling Frank king of the world. Why? Because he's not on social media in in terrible Dolce & Gabbana outfits. You know, with his hackneyed dad jokes and silly quips. That's why we're not giving Frank the credit. I think Frank deserves credit for getting his guys in position like this. I think this is highly, highly impressive. And it's it's... Validation for the idea that the old school always wins. The things that worked 20 years ago will work now, even in an age of social media, because essentially people are the same. So after we get to work out who's got three belts and you know who's who's the main man in the heavyweight division two days later, the guy's the other belt will fight one of the more dominant UFC champions, but not an undefeated UFC champion, a guy we were told has the punching power to knock out any modern-day heavyweight, Francis Ngannou. I think it's Francis Ngannou. I think the end's silent for Cameroonians. Might be wrong on that. Feel free to correct me. Do I have an issue with the fight? Conceptually, no. no. I'll explain why. Tyson's always had a bigger picture than just boxing. He understands that the money's in the Middle East. And at the moment, if you look at how things are, to get to the Middle East, you've got to go through Eddie, or you've got to go through Bob. Um, What Tyson's saying is, I want to negotiate with the Saudis off my own back. How do I do this? By being in Saudi, by helping the Saudi government. So he did Crown Royal. He's done a few things with the WWE. Um, He's been very sympathetic to... Islam, a lot of things that Fury's done stand him in good stead when it comes to actually, you know, looking for that undisputed fight. I also think there are a number of people who are eating off Tyson and he's probably just trying to get them paid off. So when he does cash out, he gets all that money. I wouldn't be surprised if the Hennessy contract's still live. You know, and I imagine the guys in this team are like, what are we still paying Hennessy for? Why are we paying Hennessy? Hell no. We want some of that money. So I imagine the reason you're not seeing Fury in like these major, major fights is probably just down to that. He doesn't want to keep paying people, and he wants to cash out on his terms on the biggest fights. So these sorts of fights here, I'm sure count. As long as it's a sanctioned bout, I'm sure this will count towards whatever obligations he's got. He can pay out some of that money. Then when he gets that £70-80 80 million pound payday, that's it, done. It's a wrap right off into the sunset. So I think there's a there's a bigger game being played than just, oh, he's avoiding so-and-so. I just don't think Fury wants to give certain people the fights that they want from like a business perspective. And you'll find that once he dischar- discharges all these obligations, Fury will fight, fight them. And I think he means it when he says, i fight them all in one day. He probably would do. He just doesn't want to give that money away. So we're going to get Tyson Fury against Francis Ngannou. I'll make one prediction. We will realise that these UFC guys do not have boxing power, they've got MMA power in those MMA gloves, yeah, they won't have boxing power, and they won't have boxing punch resistance, so this won't be like Mayweather McGregor, I can see if Fury wants to, I think once Fury establishes how dominant he is over Nganu, he may carry him for a bit, And I think you may get a bit of a walk around and then Fury might stop him with a body shot just to go, look, this is the cleanest way to end it. not going to say it's scripted, but I'll say it'll be a managed result. And the fans will go home happy, as they always do. So I can understand Fury doing it from a business perspective. I know fans will be upset from a legacy perspective. But like I said, I think there's a bigger picture here which involves getting rid of contracts that are probably draining him. Because, listen, you sign a Hennessy contract, he might be taking 30% of your dough off the top. Yeah, And then these things automatically renew upon certain events. So it's crazy that you can still be tied down to Hennessy. I think Savannah Marshall's on her second or third Hennessy contract because they just automatically renew when you, when you do something. Mix a gangster with that paperwork. You know, but I, as, as I always say, like once you join the dots in this sport, you understand how this game actually works and you understand who actually calls the shots. That's all I'll say on the matter. But yeah, so that's your bank holiday weekend sorted, right? Courtesy of Uncle Frank, you've got Dubois, Usik, Usik Dubois, and then you've got Fury and And then just when you thought Frank couldn't deliver anymore, Frank then says, we're gonna give you Joyce versus Zhang again. Wow, this pod's gone gone way off track. I'm um, got sidetracked by phone calls. Why do people do that? But let's go. Let me get my thoughts back. So, what I'd say in regards to Dubois Usak and God, if I, if I already covered this, I'm going to look so stupid. At some point, we're going to start comparing Dubois, Usyk versus Joshua and Klitschka, aren't we? Um, two Brits, two Ukrainians, uh, two Olympic gold medalists against two big, strong Brits, whoever punches chance, right? That's a wonderful story. And if Dubois can provide half the entertainment that Joshua did, it may catapult him to you know, another realm of stardom. Whether he wants that, I don't know, because the Dubois family are generally quite quiet and quite modest. But credit where credit's due. Because we always talk about how Joshua was a baby when he did this and he did that. Dubois a baby in all possible ways. Like He's quite a sheltered guy. Um, didn't do a lot of the travel with GB. Didn't do a big tournament with GB. Just kept his head down. Stuck to it. And look at where he's got himself. So really looking forward to that. I think that will be a good fight. Um, let's just transition quickly into, into Joyce Young. Because I know I've done Usyk and Garni to death. And if I haven't, sorry. Joyce versus Zhang. And I've probably covered this already, so forgive me if I'm replaying this. But as I said earlier, Joe refuses to change his style. And that was exactly what got him beat in the first fight. When someone as big and slow as Zhang can land his backhand with impunity, and actually it got to a point where it was just disrespectful. Remember, he was throwing double backhands, at an Olympic silver medalist, many think he was robbed. But you see that kind of performance, and you go, ah, maybe he wasn't robbed. And here's the thing, because Zhang is so disciplined, and so, I don't want to say basic, he's so fundamentally sound, the idea that Joe's just going to juggernaut him, like, Zhang's a bigger man, Zhang is the juggernaut in this fight, and if Zhang decides to to put the pressure on Joe, Zhou, Joe's gonna have to find another way to box. Joe's gonna have to move and groove. Joe's gonna have to to box like a smaller man. He's never had to do that before, so there's a big psychological journey that goes with that, more so than sheer tactics. Because if you can't deal with a southpaw like Zhang as a professional, you shouldn't be a professional. That's what I'd say about that fight. But uh, as I said earlier, Frank. Frank's delivered, right? Frank's got that top table of heavyweights sorted. He's delivered, and credit where credit's due. Now let's talk about the elephant in the room, and that is Deontay Wilder. Um, if I were to look at the current heavyweights and say who's most likely to get in the Hall of Fame, I think Deontay is a Joshua, Usyk, or Fury win away from taking the lead in that. Uh, people say he lost twice to to Fury, and then the, the Fury nut-huggers will say he lost three times. No, I'm sure I'll get a tweet saying that because someone's gonna try and be smart, aren't they? But Wilder went on that it went from being a soup a soup can run. Let's not let's not pretend, right? He knocked over a load of stiffs and we weren't really sure. And then I think it was like with like who was it? Was it us, And then after that you started to think, eh. I think he can knock people out for fun. And you've seen it, he's knocked out people who others have struggled with. Um, he made Ortiz look mortal at a time when people said this guy will kill Anthony Joshua. Um, look at what he did to Hellenius. Look what he did to Dominic Brazil, a guy that Joshua struggled to put a dent in. And that was like prime Joshua. That was brawn over brains Joshua. That was everything on the top shelf in the pharmacy Joshua, allegedly. That was AJ. That was prime AJ. That was could win the Mr. Olympia AJ. And he couldn't put a dent in Brazil till round six or seven. Wilder did with ease. Remember when people said Stavane had one of the best chins in the heavyweight division? Second fight, Wilder showed he If he has, then Wilder's got superhuman power. So the point I'm trying to make in this fight is, in this whole story, not even the fight, the whole story is, Deontay Wilder is the true freak of the heavyweights, right? Limited skills, but is smart enough to know how to let that right hand go and when to let it go. And through that, he's entertained fans. Like, if you were to take the heavyweight highlights from the last however many years, let's just say the last 15 years, how many involved Deontay Wilder? Either him putting someone down or him going down. How many involved Deontay Wilder? More than involved Fury more than involve Joshua. And that's the uncomfortable truth that most of the the girlfriends, you know, amongst amongst their fan bases struggle with, right? That is the harsh reality that Fury doesn't have that many. Joshua doesn't have that many. Wilder does. And that's what that's what makes him top tier. And we're gonna see what he can do against Andy Ruiz. Bear in mind Andy Ruiz is the guy that got dropped by Chris Ariola and Ariola is not known for doing things like that. So what's Wilder going to do to him? If Wilder were to to decimate Andy Ruiz and knock him out cold, the gap in perception between him and Joshua would just grow. And you imagine Joshua would do what he could to avoid that fight. If you've avoided that fight ever since you won the belt, I don't think you really want it. And that's why we're hearing the talk of December, because it's an easy thing to go, well, no one's ready. We're just going to move on. And I think that's going to be the message. After Dillian, you're going to hear a lot of talk for about six weeks. About Joshua Wilder in December, and then you hear Wilder's fighting Ruiz, and then Matchroom will just say, "Right, we're moving on," and they'll wheel out someone else. They'll go, "Right, we'll fight the winner of Joyce versus Yang." Right, that's what they'll do. Yet Deontay Wilder, is, I think, is the key man in the division. If if the event doesn't involve Deontay, then I don't think it's a super fight. I just don't. Um, if you look at Fury, Fury is more concerned with protecting his brand and his income. Josh is more concerned with avoiding danger. Usyk, we don't really know because he doesn't talk that much. And that kind of leaves Wilder as the guy who, to, to use a matching expression, brings maximum violence. He's the key to the heavyweight division. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if the Saudis have him top of the list. Whatever happens in December, if it does happen, has to involve Deontay Wilder. Sells a fight, delivers in the ring. I think Fury is getting that way as well. I mean, think when you're in your mid thirties and you're the best part of 19 stone, you're not going to be the the slick, agile heavyweight you once were. So you, I think you know Fury will be in a lot more attritional style fights, and then fight might be interesting in that sense to see how mobile he decides to be. But I think much like Usyk, age takes away your mobility, and then it's what can you put into that space that's gone. So once you lose your mobility, what can you add? If you go back in history, what Ali added was resilience. So Ali could wait for you to get tired and he could you know, use his conditioning to then pick you off and start stealing rounds off judges. He knew how to clown people. Ali learned how to win through intelligence as opposed to athleticism. That was his big evolution between that kind of first Frasier loss and maybe the Ken Norton fight was that ability to, to nick rounds. And most good guys learned to do that in their 30s. Um, I think too often people feel the pressure to, to be the guy they were 10 years ago, and that doesn't work. So hopefully Wilder does get a fight before year-end. As much as it's going to throw everyone's schedule off, he's always a good guy to see boxing. And if you remember what he did last year, devastating. Never forget what he did to Hellenius. It was devastating. And we know what Hellenius has been like around other people. And so... How do we tie this all together? We're not going to get what we want. We want an undisputed fight. And it looks like Fury and Usyk are on parallel courses. But there's been no appetite to make the fight so far. So I can't see why the fight would happen next. I imagine Usyk is at the point where he's had enough of dealing with those guys. And he'll just be like, listen... My next fight's my last fight. It might be Joshua. It might be Wilder, but I don't think it'll be Fury. And then that will put some pressure on. So I think those two are the most likely to fight. And I'm gonna ask you, do you really want to see that fight as a fan? It's not the one we choose. And then that would kind of leave in terms of dance partners, that would leave Joshua and Wilder. I just don't see Joshua really wanting that fight if Wilder looks impressive against Ruiz. And then that would leave Dillian slash Dubois against a Joyce slash Zhang, in my opinion. And those are those are fights that tell us nothing. Apart from the undisputed fights, The are fights that tell us nothing. I don't believe there's there's a version of Joshua that exists in his own mind that beats Deontay Wilder. But I think every version of Deontay Wilder that we have ever seen beats Anthony Joshua. I think knocks him out. <laughs> Folks like not clean. You're not going to jab a move against Wilder. Wilder's jab is so underrated. If you don't believe me, watch what he does with his jab. Watch how much distance he can create with his jab. And the thing is, you're so paranoid of that right hand that you dare not rush in. Think about the guy who really gave him trouble. And actually, I forgot that Wilder played with Areola before he fought Ruiz. Wow. <laughs> but... Think of what Wilder does with that jab. And the only guy that could really deal with it was Lewis Ortiz. And that's a high skill level. That is not Anthony Joshua. Anthony Joshua will be in and out. And if his timing's off, he's going to eat that right hand. It might be like Wilder's fight with David Price. Now, that would make the heavyweight division exciting, if I'm being honest. But my big worry is, we end up at the end of the year, and we're no further forward than we are now. We've all shelled out a bucket load of cash for them to get rich, and for them to give the fans nothing that is memorable. But having said all of that, I could be completely wrong, and every one of those four fights we've discussed could end up in a spectacular knockout. And we're all back in love with boxing again. But of all the divisions, the heavyweights have been the best at disappointing us. I want to do an episode where I'm a bit more optimistic, so the next one probably will be a bit more optimistic because there's some great stuff happening. Fulton way. Spence Crawford, Charlo versus Canelo. Um, even if you go down the ladder, Aziz versus he has been signed. Um, Eubank versus Smith, part two, been signed and agreed. There's so much good stuff happening in boxing that I think we get distracted by what these guys are doing in the heavyweight division. And we use it to kind of tar boxing with the same brush. But let's not do that. Let's remember, you know, there are so many other divisions that do deliver. And let's not forget Sonny Edwards versus Bam Rodriguez. That's a good fight. That's a genuinely good fight. I mean, you know, people say, oh, you don't like Sonny Edwards. That's a good fight. That's someone putting himself in harm's way because he believes in himself. So these are the things to be optimistic about. And I will be a lot more optimistic in, in the next episode. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to close off with something that I was listening to. And the reason I wanted to share this is I say a lot of stuff about boxers and I have my own view. But sometimes it's good to get um, an outside perspective on what other people see because, you know, we're boxing fans. We drown in the detail, whereas I think your sort of general population will have a different view
1: is you get to meet some cool people. The, probably the best, actually, was Anthony Joshua. Mm. We sponsored him with Lucas Sport. And do you know what? For a guy that knocks people out for a living, he is the nicest person I've met. And it's really odd, because he, he is literally like the gentle giant. And the th- do you know I'll tell you the thing that really touched me about him, actually, because, you, know, you know, we were paying him... We weren't paying him that much money, actually. It wasn't a huge deal. How we were much were you him. paying him? I think about thousand a year he would have been earning millions from other sponsorships I I mean I don't know for sure but I'd imagine Under Armour and Bose and you know the other kind of people that sponsored him probably I Beats rather it wasn't Bose Beats probably paid a lot more but we we got him when he was up and coming so we spotted him very early one of the very very early sponsors for him but he did so much for that fee I mean he would You know, I mean, some celebrities you endorse, you kind of, you know, you get your 15 minutes with them and that's it. and Nothing happens Mm -hmm. with him. He's like, yeah, I'll come down and talk to your team. I'll come and, you know, turn up at your event. Yeah. Let's stay chatting and have a drink and so on. And the thing that really touched me about him was, um, you know, we didn't necessarily get to know each other that well. But I, I probably met him six or seven times at different things we were doing. But every time he remembered who I was. Now, he was meeting hundreds of people and, you know, there were lots of people even within my team that, he you know, he dealt with and had to remember. But, you know, I remember at kind of launch events, he would spot me in the audience, go, John, come up, come and join us in this photo, you know, and this sort of stuff, yeah. you know. And I just thought it was lovely. I mean, he, the thing with him is he knows his brand. And he knows his brand is kind of motivational, good guy in a tough world type thing. Got a, got a backstory, you know, boy did good, all that sort of thing. And he really knows that. And he works very well, but in a really authentic way. I mean, one of the funniest things, actually, which um, one of my proudest moments, actually, from that job was we we came up with this idea for LucasAid Sport called Made to Move. And the idea of the idea of the kind of advertising was that you know as human beings we're all kind of made to move and what LucasAid sport does is it helps you to move so by being a sports drink we wanted to inspire everyone to move more get fitter live healthier lives and so on and Dominic who was the creative at Grey the ad agency said to me this is going back to about 2016 I think and AJ, as we called him, was going to fight Klitschko. Mm -hmm. No, it wasn't 2016, it might be 2018. Anyway, AJ was going to fight Klitschko at Wembley, the biggest paid-for fight he's ever done. 90,000 people in Wembley. It was probably one of the biggest sporting events of that year. And this is back in December. I think the the match was in, or the fight was in March. And Dominic said to me, listen, we should tell AJ's story. We should tell the story from being born to walking out in Wembley in a two- or three-minute, Film, And we should place that film in the ad break before he actually walks out Mm -hmm. in front of Wembley in front of millions that are watching. How amazing would it be to take him from, you know, being born to getting into trouble to trainings, becoming a builder to boxing and, you know, coming up through the ranks and, and get to where he is today and it was so cool and i remember i i signed it off immediately going this this is i'd love to do that that just sounds really cool but the reason i'm telling you the story was um aj was about to go into lockdown so he does a training he goes into kind of an eight to ten week lockdown period before any fight where he doesn't do any media he's literally focused on the task in hand and we were talking to his agent and we said look we really want to get him to do this film and he was up for it by the way he was like oh yeah man i'd love someone to tell my story and he he, he himself was really up for being involved he said the trouble is the only window that i've got to talk is i'm going to dubai on holiday with my family he said if you can send a couple of people out to join me i'm happy to tell you everything about my backstory (laughs) so so james and and dominic and so james is in the sport team and Dominic, got to fly out to Dubai for the weekend and they joined AJ at a water park where he's hanging out with his... I mean, he's got a big crew around him, as you might imagine. Yeah. And they got to h- hang out with him. But what was so touching and so lovely is they came back and they said to me, John, the story's not AJ, it's his mum. Mm. And I'm like, oh, really? He said, yeah, he will do anything for his mum. And the relationship, they are so close and that she's brought him up and so on. So actually, when we made the film... And if you watch it, it's called Nobody Ever Moved Forward Standing Still. If you watch the film, what you'll notice is the, the thing that gets you is actually the relationship with his mum. And, that you know, she kind of, you know, look, looked out for him, got him out of jail when he got into trouble, all that kind of stuff. And and, and he's obviously incredibly proud. And and I think he lived, I don't know for sure, but I think he lived with his mum until quite recently. I think he's moved out now. But it was just so touching. But we would never have... We would never have got that story had he not been so generous with his time and allowed us to kind of interrupt, you know, his holiday to kind of interview him and, and get the background on it. So that just shows, I mean, that's, you know, for someone as famous and as wealthy and as busy and as in demand as him to give up the time he did for us. And we weren't paying him, as I said, that much money, but by, by the kind of league he's in it was amazing, really. So so that was a massive perk of the job, so-